Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Police Services Board had their meeting on the troubling report that shows the black community overrepresented in police use of force incidents. Hamilton Chief of Police Frank Bergen will join us to talk about that. An op-ed from Khaled Brin, director of the Center for Media Studies at Laval University, says Canadians are losing their appetite for news and trusting it less. And in sports, CHML's Rick Zamperin talks Tiger Cats, home opener coming up against the Montreal Alouettes. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Very troubling report uh, that we had talked about earlier this week, but uh, the Police Services Board did have their meeting yesterday, a public meeting. Uh, and they went over the uh, use of force report. Now, this is actually provincially mandated. Police services have to do this and uh, present statistics on this. And uh, uh, some people in the community are looking at that as, as as proof positive of some of the assertions that they have made anecdotally over the last little while about, uh, well, perception anyway in many people's minds uh, that there is uh, discrimination uh, within the Hamilton Police Services. Uh, joining us to talk about this and to give us some perspective on this, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Frank Bergen, who is the Chief of Police for Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Chief, great to have you back on the show. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this and, and maybe just to give us some perspective on this. As I mentioned in the in the opening here, uh, this is something the police services are mandated to do. So uh, you gather these statistics, uh, and I guess your job and your staff's job is to do some evaluation as to exactly what kind of stories uh, these numbers do tell you. What what did you get out of this report on these numbers? Thank you, Bill, for the opportunity to address this matter. And, and you're right, it's an important conversation, but it's a, a complex a conversation, because uh, as you have said, uh, perception is everything. And the reality in this particular uh, stream of information, if you will, uh, we're held to ministry guidelines, as you had indicated. In 2020, uh, the ministry was very clear, and they were um, giving us eight categories of race, and we're to actually um, to be submitting what we perceive to be the race. And, and that in itself became cumbersome and a challenge. And, and a lot of the community members, and we heard even yesterday, uh, don't think it's up to us to Perceive that race. Uh, beyond that, we've also adopted, and this year was quite different because we've also come out uh, with what has been the Ontario Anti-Racism Data Standards for collecting this type of data, and it's called the Disparity Index. That Disparity Index, and what's really important for it to understand is there's two streams. One of it is internal, is what is within the police service, and that's what we talk about, officer bias, institutional cultural practices. Uh, so when Goodman gauge decisions occur, uh, that's when we have to look at the charter and an articulable cause, search and seizure, racial profiling. But the external component, and, and this is where really I get, I'm really a little bit flat-footed on being able to speak to it, is what's the person's choice and actions at the interaction, and what is the social and demographic factors. So when we actually took these numbers, um, the reality is, in this case, we have said this clearly, um, we've had over 270,500 interactions, of which 410 use of force reports were submitted. Out of those 410 use of force reports, uh, we can further distill that down, and we have 291 occurrences or incidences where we're interacting and using force. Because in many cases, let's use a very simple math. If three officers attend and three officers use a varying degree of use of force, then what you'll end up having is three 
incidences, as well as three subjects when, in fact, it's one. So what we need to have is an honest conversation about what do these numbers mean. And that's what we're hearing about, again, the perceptions everybody's taking. But in this particular community's concerns, there's 84 interactions of, again, that out of that 410, but out of really the 270,500 interactions. And out of that 84, when we actually say duplication, we get down to 62 interactions with the community. But to that point, then, are you, are you suggesting that the numbers in this report here are not a true representation of actually what's going on on the street? I don't want to be so crass to say that it's not a true representation because when, in fact, uh, there is excessive force, as you know, we're guided by Section 25 of the Criminal Code, which is our authority to use force. But Section 26 of it also talks about excessive force. In 2022, as you, I think everybody is aware, uh, we had a member that we identified had used excessive force. That member was suspended and ultimately charged and held accountable. What I what I want people to understand is is what is the scope of the interaction and how were we brought to it? Bill, over eighty percent of the calls that we are called to are are generated by the community. There has been extreme words such as targeting the community, when in fact we're responding to the community. But we're responding to people in crisis. We're responding to domestics, to disputes. We're responding to weapons cases, to robberies, and we're also seeing what has been in 22 firearms seized by the Hamilton Police Service for 544, of which 285 were crime guns. So all I'm asking for the community to do is to take the row-by-row data that we've given over the last three years to understand what is the interaction what is actually the, the causal effects of the outcome, but more importantly, what the actual disparity index asks us is what is the role of the police and what is the role of the community. Okay, but let's look at a couple of these numbers. And I know you went over this at the meeting yesterday, Chief, and I appreciate you taking some time to, to talk to our listeners about this today, too. Uh, but the data that's included in this report here says that black people were targets of police force, 17.2% of all use of force incidents last year. Black people represent about 5% of the population of the city here, but 17.2% of them are involved in these incidents. Does that raise a red flag to you? Yeah, so that's why the disparity index is so key for us to, to clearly understand what that means. Because the disparity index does not actually um, go down to what is the incident. They are asking in that lens, and this is the lens on the Ontario Anti-Racist Data Standard, that they talk about what is the value. And that value is based on officer bias, institutional, cultural practices, person's choice and actions, and social and demographic factors. We do not create that filter. What we can't answer is, answer is why are we coming into contact with the same communities more than others? And, and that's the question. I mean, even the report, the, the quote I see here is uh, they even looked at that data and they call this as a, a gross overrepresentation. And and I, I, I be frank, Chief, I mean, you've heard this before. I mean, I know you spent some time in Toronto as well. And, and those stories have been going on for years and years now that, that blacks uh, tend to, to, again, be overrepresented when it comes to, to, to you know, it's 
not just incidents like this, but uh, police interactions with uh, with some communities. Uh, you know, we got. To, I don't want to get into the debate about carding right now, but you you were there and you were right in the front line when that was going on too. And the same accusations were made because the numbers are the numbers. And, and whether it's two officers that are attending to a scene or three officers or only one officer, uh, there still seems to be an overrepresentation. Uh, but the report goes on to say that notwithstanding that number, uh, that it's important to note that disparity does not equate to discrimination. But can you understand how people that are involved in that, in other words, the people that are the victims, the targets uh, that are in these, these minorities are looking at this and saying, you're kidding me. I mean, come on. It just seems as if, to use to use a street phrase, we're getting picked on more than other groups are. That's right, Bill. And and yeah, I, I'm not at all naive to understand the impact. And and I'm hearing that loud and clear from our community. Um, but again, I just want to go back that we're responding to calls. Eighty percent of these calls are generated by the public. So that that perception that we're picking on. There's two things also that I I would like to just point out. Um, in fact, if you look at our arrests, we had over 7,600 arrests last year. We had just shy of 2,100 apprehensions. So that's a total of about 9,700 interactions where, in fact, somebody's been taken into custody. When you do that same disparity index in that area, the actual thing that we should be looking at if, in fact, we're going to compare them is that the East and South Asian community were represented over four. 0.34%. And in this particular case, the black community was 1.58. The language that actually comes from the Ontario Anti-Racism Data Standard speaks to what is up underrepresented, what is overrepresented, and what is gross overrepresentation. So that language of that 3.1, which we saw and we've heard loud and clear, doesn't mean that they're actually being uh, targeted to that word from the community three times more. What it means is if you have a data set that includes 410 uh, submissions, because we're required if we use force to submit them, but in fact there are 291 incidents, really that mass should apply on the 291, not on the 410. Yeah, but the numbers here tell a story, and, and I know a number of people from the community responded at this meeting uh, yesterday uh, at the Police Services Board where they talked about this, too. Uh, and and, I, and you and I, have in past discussions, uh, when we've talked about your approach to policing and, and what what we're trying to, to accomplish here in this community, uh, I know you're a strong proponent of, of, of neighborhood policing and of community interaction between uh, police services and, and various communities within our greater community, but... How can you do that when, when these numbers come out and s- some of the members of those communities, the black community, the Asian community, you've referenced them too, uh, feel as if they're, they're, there's a bias against them right now? How, how, can, how can they trust you when they see numbers like this? It, it's 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 really about the based uh, race-based data identity strategy that we are trying to do. So um, right now, the province has understood this exact same challenge all across uh, Ontario. And so what we have done, and we're doing it, and I represent at the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police as being on the board, is we're having this conversation or race identity-based um, data. And what we do need to clearly understand is what is the data telling us. Uh, where are we and, and what reaction by our presence are we causing and what's the impact we have on our community? 
in our community, and we've talked about 2022, uh, we had 45 shootings, 17 victims. We saw a, a change from 2021 where we had 19 homicides. Last year, five homicides. What, it, what we really need is we need an opportunity to have a conversation. Uh, on, on many files in this community, we are doing everything we possibly can. Coming out of what we know as is the interaction of, of excessive force within the Indigenous community, uh, what we were able to do is sit down with our community and actually flush out the true issues and, and some of the challenges, but more importantly, some of the opportunities. What came out of that was our Indigenous liaison officer, Stacy Hill, and that was something that the community brought to us. So we would ask that all communities give us the opportunity to sit down and let's look at these line-by-line -line interactions to better understand what we can do. Let's change that, that angst that we're hearing. And, and when I subtract the 291 times that we used force in our interactions, we had, two, had 270,201 interactions where effective communication and de-escalation, which we train every day, uh, was effective. That's how we need to have this story change, and we need to clearly understand what the data is telling us. But with that in mind, and I, I totally concur with what you're saying here, because uh, this, this doesn't talk about just interactions with. This is where those interactions, as you say, in some cases uh, have have been magnified into use of force situations. Uh, and if there are if there's more than one officer there, uh, I guess the question a lot of people are asking in this community right now, Chief, is uh, what's the interaction between the officers? I mean, you know, is is there a discussion about this? Or if there's a, a bias, if there's a bad apple that, that may have some biases, and it, it happens in police services and in every other, uh, you know, career too, there there are people that just seem to have these preconceived ideas. Uh, is is there a, a dialogue about about why it ramped, it ramped up to the force the point of use of force? Uh, is Bill, there an evaluation by police services after the fact to say what could you have done differently? Uh, Bill, thank you so much. I, I, I do appreciate what you've just said because uh, coming out of out of um, March twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and and what was the aftermath of, of police legitimacy being questioned correctly uh, all across North America after George Floyd, um, we have implemented active bystander training. Uh, that is something that every member is participating in. Active bystander training allows just what you said, an opportunity for some person to understand they have an obligation to act. They, they cannot just, in fact, um, stand back and allow an interaction uh, to occur that's not acceptable. In 2022, we had 21 public complaints about excessive use of force. The reality of that is, is we are mandated under the Police Services Act to um, investigate and the OIPRD and, and the SIU oversight and, and the governing bodies. Out of those 21 complaints, only one substantiated. And, and so what we are is a highly regulated, but what Hamilton is, is able to do is to not only look at the, and rely on a regulation, but be forward thinking in how we can better serve our community. And and I know you do the training, and I know that you know, officers are required to, to to take part in these sessions at all, at, at all times. I mean, that's a box they have to check. They they, they can't skip that stuff. I understand that. Uh, but is there any follow up to, to as to you know what kind of an impact that training is going to have on that officer when they're in a situation like this as as to how they're going to respond? Uh, is there a way to evaluate that? 
there is a way to evaluate and what we have to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident you're aware, uh, you may have even participated because we asked the media once a year to come in to our use of force training and our block training uh, four days out of the year where we have that ability to talk about case law, where we have that ability I mentioned earlier to understand our articulable cause and charters 8, 9, and 10, uh, but more importantly, active bystander plus all our scenarios um, are usually come uh, come forward from those interactions where we would say, is there another approach? Is there an ability to further advance de-escalation tactics? Um, what I will say about this, although, and I do not diminish the fact that out of 291 uh, use of force uh, incidents, that there is a community that does not feel safe. With that being said, I also want to make sure that as less than 1% of our interactions require us to do a force, use force, which we're obliged to do based on a dynamic situation, and that spectrum is severe. But the reality, we have to also recommend that we take a moment to look at is still the professionalism of our police service and their ability to be able to rise to their growing call of service, but more importantly, a much more active community. The homelessness, the harm reduction, the poverty, the mental illness, and the challenges that we're seeing in this community, there's not just one answer to one area. Again, as a community collectively, we have to all understand what is our role to make sure that not only is there a perception of safety, but we are all able to deliver a safe and, and, and well-positioned um, community. I, I, I know there's a lot more we want to talk about here, and, and we'd like to, you know, delve a little deeper into this. But time is our enemy here, as as you know, Chief, from the, your past visits on the program. Uh, look forward to further discussions on this and more community involvement, too. But thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. And I'll always make myself available to speak to our community. So thank you very much. Absolutely. That's uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, uh, Frank Bergen, commenting on the uh, use of force report. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to get into a greater detail about uh, the, the Facebook and meta response to the Canadian legislation about about access and, and, and of course, compensation for the, the news that they cover. Uh, this is an interesting twist on that whole story, though. Apparently, Canadians are actually losing their appetite for news and trusting it even less. The, the rather troubling story about where we are, I guess, in our inside our heads about the information that we're getting. And uh, apparently, according to this study, we don't like to pay for it either. Uh, less and less, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that paywalls and things like that. Uh, I don't know if it's turning us off news or, or what the case it might be. Our next guest, I hope, can just shed some light on this. Uh, Colette Bryn joins us. Now, she is the uh, director of the Center for Media Studies at Laval University. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Glad to be with you. I'm looking at these numbers here, and this is the first time, according to the uh, survey here, since about 2016, uh, that we seem to have less interest. Is is it the content that's turning us off? Is it the fact that uh, that we feel we're being manipulated? What 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 do you see with the, these numbers and and the trend that seems to be developing here? Well, there's different things. I mean, first of all, is that news is becoming less and less accessible to us because platforms aren't pushing it as as much. You know, you talked about Meta in the intro and the fact that even before they started blocking the news or they announced they'd be blocking the news, they were deprioritizing it. And so when you go, when you log on to social media, the algorithms actually do uh, make some of the decisions for you as to what you're going to see, what you're going to what you're going to be exposed to. So the fact that we are being exposed less to news means that we're consuming it less. And it may also mean that we're less interested because we're getting less of it. But another thing is the fact that it's just 
there has been a lot of there have been a lot of really depressing news topics. Um, the pandemic has been really hard on everyone. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the war in Ukraine, climate stories, um, you know, uh, news. Uh, I think, you know, we, we've seen in the last couple of years that people are kind of disconnecting with news because uh, they feel, you know, powerless and, and sort of depressed also. Is is that a, a typical human reaction though? When you, uh, you you just talked about some of the major stories, and sadly they're they're the ones that keep coming and coming and coming. The war in Ukraine, and and uh, now we've got this in this country anyway. The story about the foreign interference and and the way that that's kind of become a political football. Do we just tune out then? Just unplug and said, I don't want to see this anymore. Well, I mean that's a natural response, and I would say especially at this time of year um, that you know we might want to 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 turn to more pleasant things and we do see in the survey that people are uh saying they're turning more to lifestyle and entertainment type content and this is the type of content that not only is pleasant to consumers but also is much uh less risky for 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 media and for platforms so uh I, you know some some media companies are calling this time of content brand safe because there's no controversy there's no polarization uh, you know, this is the kind of content that's really easy to promote uh, and to sell to advertisers. Uh, but news is obviously something that's much more messy and and something that we need to to engage with in a democracy. You know, if we're if we're not curious about what's happening on as happening in our city halls or uh, you know legislatures, um, it's not it's not a good uh, it's not a good thing for democracy. Well, exactly, and your, your point about the, the platforms themselves, I think, is 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 very cogent to what we're talking about here. Uh, they make money by the, the number of people that actually you know log on and 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 watch whatever it is, and and if they're not looking at news sites, and, and they're going to lose revenue, which is why you uh, you notice. I mean, you know, as opposed to reading hard news, I think an awful lot of people right now are just going, you know, I, I'd rather watch the TikTok video about the cat rolling over. You know, that's I just it can cleanse my mind, and if more people are doing that, that's the kind of product that they're going to give us isn't it yeah exactly and it's you know i mean it's it's a natural response we all do it i'm not judging anyone for sure i certainly do it myself but it's becoming harder and harder to to find and to to navigate the online space to find news a lot of it is also not really trustworthy and it's harder and harder for people to figure out what is really reliable uh news so just the effort involved in all of that uh, and the fact that platforms are not uh, are not really willing to to contribute to this, and the fact that it's really hard also to just find ways to fund journalism, uh, it's a it's a dangerous cocktail, I would say. Well, let's talk about some of that funding because that may actually be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Uh, what a lot of places have done, and uh, some of the news sectors. I'm, I'm a news junkie, and I'm you know with your background, of course, that uh, you know we we have this appetite for it. Uh, but if you're if we as a, as a, as a country are starting to get rather skeptical about this uh, and getting turned off by this, the last thing you want to do is say, "Okay, I'm going to figure what's going on." Oh, there's a paywall. Are you kidding me? I don't want to pay for this. Exactly. And you just it's a, it's a vicious I mean, circle, right? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah. And they, I know why they're doing it because they figure, "Hey, we're losing revenue, and we've got to do something to recoup that." But the 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 overwhelming response by by the public here seems to be i'm not doing that and and we saw that in these numbers in this survey uh the number of people that did actually accept paywalls and say okay i'll I'll do that because i want to get i want to be informed that it's declining considerably right now yeah and and the fact is that if you're not 
if the content is behind the paywall, you don't know what you're missing. And you really need that motivation to say, okay, I'm going to pay for a subscription. Uh, we do have tax credits for, for used subscriptions in Canada. So that, that helps a little bit, but I don't think it makes, based on the numbers we're seeing, it's not making much of a, an, a difference in terms of uh, people deciding to say, okay, this is worth putting my money into. Uh, people tend to consider media budget like a, a closed amount that they'll spend per month and they'll use that for streaming platforms, things like Netflix, but that's, that's entertainment. That's not news, right? It's a yeah. different type of content. I mean, there are documentaries in Netflix. There's lots of really interesting stuff there, but it's, it's a different type of content and people have just been used to getting news for free for, for quite a long time. Um, and so it's, and, and also the fact that younger people have not either been socialized to, you know, watch the news on TV or read a newspaper or use news and on those most more tra traditional platforms. So, but we see that younger people are more uh, likely to pay for news uh, than, uh, than older people. So maybe there's a little bit of hope there. Hopefully uh, th there's another twist to this too. I wanted to get your read on, especially, you know, with the, your background, at, at, you're, you're at Laval the university, of course, Francophones seem much more interested in, 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 obtaining news and information yeah. uh, than anglophones in this country but almost by about a, a, a eight to ten percent increase yeah. uh, over over the rest of the country uh and and which i in a roundabout way i guess professor doesn't really surprise me because i've always felt that the especially in quebec they seem far more engaged in politics and in in, in some of these issues that, that that maybe don't resonate so much with people in other parts of the country yeah, well, there's a combination of language of geography, which certainly helps uh, Quebec. The fact that, you know, news is in French and that we're much less likely to consume foreign news, especially American news media. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Francophones are very highly concentrated in one province. So that makes provincial politics and, and national politics kind of all combined. Uh, it's much harder to reach an audience that's spread out across, you know, all those time zones. Um, I'm uh, originally from Manitoba and I, I, I grew up in, in Winnipeg. So I, you know, I'm very familiar with the, the idea of the West not feeling, uh, you know, represented in, in, in uh, media, which are highly concentrated in Toronto. Um, so, and, and in that region. So, so that's another problem. Like the, the, the geography of this country it makes it really, really hard for people to engage and and we've seen a really big decline in local news sources, especially local newspapers, um, community papers, and 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 that's really I think having it's taking its toll. I, I've got a chicken and egg question for you here, <laughs> which I hope you can clarify. Uh, because of this decline in interest in news, uh, is it because of, of of some of the the attacks that have gone out? That, I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to throw it out there because everybody can understand it. the mainstream media. Um, yeah. You know, we hate we hate the CBC. We hate this newspaper. We hate this. You know, it's it, and I'm not going to use the term fake news, but I mean the variations on that theme uh, that go on like that. Is that turning people off, or is that really a reflection of the fact that people were already turned off? Yeah. And this is what I they're think, using I to think justify. You're right about the chicken and egg. I think it's a bit of both, right? I yeah. mean, people were uh, feeling alienated from. Uh, you know, a lot of people were were very frustrated with the, the restrictions during the pandemic, and that kind of fed into, you know pre-existing frustrations with with news media with the fact that news media have been less and less able you know they don't have the resources to cover news like they used to uh, so as as the the resources decline they become less and less relevant to a lot of people uh, and, and also I think the polarization of opinion you know people 
not happy about the way certain news topics are covered or the fact that certain news topics are news topics at all. Um, you know, it's it's become really complicated to to be a journalist in this environment. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to blame the audience and I don't want to blame journalists either. But it's it's become really hard for for journalists to really connect with audiences on, on all of these levels, because when opinion is so polarized, whatever you do, there is going to be a group of people who's going to blame you for it. And journalists are being harassed and journalists are receiving a lot of, you know, a lot of hate and a lot of blame, which is probably expressing some really, you know, some real concerns that people have. But it, it comes out so, uh, so violently that it's, you know, it's become harder to 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 actually work as a journalist. Absolutely. I, I'm so glad you had some time for this, this morning to, to give us some perspective on this, uh, about what, just where our heads are at right now. And, and there's so much more we could talk about, and perhaps we'll do a part two on this in the not-too-distant future. But thank you so much for the time today, uh, Professor. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Take care. Let's uh, call it Bryn, Director of Center for Media Studies at Laval University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tiger Cat home opener tonight at Tim Horton Field uh, against the Montreal Alouettes. Uh, joining us to talk about this, Rex Zambrin, host of Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and, of course, CHML Sports Director. Uh, Rick, uh, I got to tell you, about five, six weeks ago when we were talking, you're still in training camp. Uh, by the third game of the season here, well, you know, we're 0-2, haven't won a game yet. Our star quarterback's not going to be playing tonight. This is not how we drew it up. Uh, but but how do they overcome what, what adversity they seem to be facing today? Well, they got to they go and get a victory. I think that, ah. that, that cures all ails. When you get a W, uh, you know you're on the right track. Something has gone right. You've played a good game you know, 99 times out of 100. Um, but, yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, they're 0-2 both of those games on the road against, you know, pretty difficult opponents in Winnipeg and Toronto. But, you know, you're, you're facing one of the best teams in the league in Winnipeg in Week 1. In Week 2, you're playing the Argos, who had the bye in Week 1, so well-rested. Now, here in Week 3, you've yet to win a game, and you're facing a well-rested Montreal team because they've just come off the bye, and Hamilton is going into their bye. So the last thing they want to do is to spend their entire bye week thinking about a potential 0-3 starts. This is as close to a must-win as you can get in Week 3 um, we'll see what happens tonight. I, I'm trying to think of one word that can describe those first two games. I mean, disappointing, certainly, from the Tiger Cat standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, they seemed almost lethargic in, at times in those two games, which is not what you usually see from, from a lot of the guys individually on this team right now. It, it's almost like they, they need an infusion of, of enthusiasm or something or other like this going on tonight. Maybe the home crowd can provide that. Perhaps, you know, the one word that that comes to mind for me is better. They need to be better in a bunch of places, whether it comes to red zone efficiency, not turning the ball over, uh, being ready to play at the opening whistle, uh, converting on opportunities, not taking dumb penalties, you know, showing up for a full 60 minutes. You, you throw in some cliches there as well, but they just haven't been the better team in each of those games in, in any facet of the game. Yeah, they've had some good plays here and there, but... I don't think we can clearly say the Ticats won this phase of the game for 60 minutes. So they got to do that tonight because Montreal's coming in hungry. They're coming in, as I said, well-rested. This is going to be a tough battle. Uh, so I'll, I'll throw one more cliche because I heard you used it after the last <laughs> game of the fifth bunch. quarter. 
Uh, turnovers, stop it yeah. right now, okay? Uh, I mean, both through two interceptions, and both of them were in the end zone. I mean, just, you know, I, I, here's let's play what if. If both of those had resulted in touchdowns, it's a much different game. I Not just because the score would be closer, uh, but those are the sorts of things that you've got to make happen when you get those opportunities. Absolutely. And, and not only did that wipe off potentially two touchdowns for the Ticats, it gave Toronto the ball, and Toronto yeah. used those turnovers to score two touchdowns. The final score was 32-14. You give 14 points to the Tiger Cats, it's not only a close game, but maybe they win it at the end. I mean, turnovers are massive, and especially when you're in the red zone and you're throwing the ball in the end zone, and two ill-advised passes, especially the second one, which was into triple coverage, and I think the intended receiver was Tyler Turnowski, who was really nowhere near the football. Bo has to be smarter with the ball. James Butler had a couple of fumbles in the opening game against Winnipeg. He has to protect the ball, and he did just that in in Toronto in week number two. But it's the the you know that little attention to all those fine details that throughout the game something can go awry. And in the first couple of games, it has certainly happened that way. I mean, six turnovers in in game one, and a couple of big ones in game two. They got to cut that out here tonight. Well, there's no bow tonight, as we know. Uh, by the way, that was a late hit on him in, in, in Toronto. I don't know why the, the, the referee's standing right there in the backfield. Uh, he'd thrown the ball. He had his hands down by his side, and, and he got hit. I mean, that, I, I thought they were supposed to protect quarterbacks in this league. Well, and you will uh, they recall didn't... that Chad Kelly got hit after he threw the ball, and the flag came out almost immediately. And I thought that was yeah. way closer of a play than when Bo got hit in the end zone. I mean, that was like two, three steamboats after he got rid of the ball. Easily. Yeah, easily. Um, anyway, that, there's not much I guess we can do about that now. So it's Matt Schultz tonight, uh, and we know him, of course. He started four games last year. Uh, I think everybody was glad that he re-signed with the football team. He's, he's a good quarterback, uh, and and I'm, I'm not I'm, – I'm upset that Bo's not going to play, and I'm upset about the injury, but uh, we got a pretty good number two here who's almost, almost a 1A the way he played last year. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think a lot of the players on this team are a fan of Matt Schultz. I, I know that Coach Orlando Steinauer is a big fan as well. He mentioned the other day that, uh, listen, he, he really likes Schultz's game because when he doesn't see a play, when he's standing in the pocket, he has no fear in taking taking off with the football. And as we saw, evidence, you know, Exhibit A in that first preseason game that he played in against Montreal, was week two of the preseason you know, first play of the game, he's ripping off a 51-yard run to set up Hamilton's first uh, field goal of the game. So, you know, he he can throw the ball. He, I think he's meshed with, uh, obviously, the guys who have been here for a few years, the Tim Whites of the world, but even the new guys with Duke Williams, James Butler in the backfield, the, the, the remade offensive line, which is going through some more changes this week. Matt Schiltz has the playbook down pat. I think he's excited to get this opportunity again. Um, and I'm I'm eager to see what he's he's got in store for this uh, Ticats offense tonight. Well, I mean, the, the two guys that have really impressed me on the offense are actually the two Canadian receivers uh, that I think uh, you know have just played outstanding football for them, and 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 that's that's a big plus too. And you've got the guys that are. I mean, we need a mash unit down there, I and mean, we had so, so many guys on the injury list. Yeah. Uh, but the, the quickie I wanted to mention just before we had to go here, Lawrence Woods is back tonight. I understand he is. Yeah, and that's a great sign because not only has he become an effective defender at that cornerback position, we all know what he can do in special teams, and he's one of those few guys in the league that can break it open. So that could be tonight. Although, you know, Montreal's got some good special teamers as well. And I think I think the Owls are going to be a tough nut to crack. And they only, only scored 19 points against Ottawa. But this is Hamilton's home opener. This is the Ticats, I think, putting their foot down to say, all right, we got a rebound from these first two losses. Let's give it our all. And I'm expecting a big game tonight out of the Ticats team. 
Uh, and by the way, speaking of breaking it open, uh, the alumni distinction tonight is uh, Speedy Banks. He's back in town tonight, and uh, hopefully the fans will be there to, to show their appreciation for that. And you're working late tonight, too. You'll be on with the fifth quarter after the game. Fifth quarter after the game, yeah, brought to you by Eastgate Ford. I should mention, too, we had Speedy B on the morning show today, and he's leaving the door open to a potential comeback, and he did mention a team <laughs> in black and gold that he'd love to play for again. Well, that's a long season. Guys yeah. get banged up, and uh, maybe they'll give him a jersey tonight. Who knows? <laughs> uh, thanks so much for this, Rick. I uh, appreciate it. We'll uh, see Well, see who these guys can turn it around tonight. And you can hear the game, of course, on 900 CHML uh, with RJ Broadhead and, and Luke Tasker. And, of course, uh, Rick with the fifth quarter after that. Take care, Rick. You got it, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.